So in a moment, Christoph's going to come and we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Isaiah. And this evening we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 42. It's on page 727 of your pew Bibles. And we're going to read um, from 1 until verse 17. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways that they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. This is the word of the Lord.
Folks, please have that passage there in Isaiah 42 open before you. That's uh, the chapter we're going to be looking at and working on this evening. Just before we come to that, I want to say uh, a couple of uh, personal things. I want to thank Dan for leading us uh, this evening. I'm sure you've appreciated his leading already. It's been a while since we've used a a worship leader at an evening service, because the last two or three years, uh, Richie and Stephen and whoever else was around, we sort of shared it among ourselves. Um, This year with me being on my own, I've uh, put a wee invitation out to see if any of our worship leaders would come and help me on a a Sunday evening. So Dan, thank you for for leading us so, so well this evening. The other personal thing I want to say very quickly is I want to talk for a second about Royce and Susan. Um, Some of you will have have had the chance to meet them over these last number of years, others of you maybe not, but uh, most people who've been around Kirkpatrick for a while will have heard us talk at some point in one of our services about the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, discipling program running here in, in Belfast. Uh, which Royce and Susan came to establish four years ago. It's been a huge blessing to a number of members of this congregation, to many, many more people uh, in and around Belfast. Um, So tonight, the reason I I mention them here, they're they're here with us quite often, but the reason I mention them tonight is that they're traveling this week back to the States. Uh, A couple of circumstances around uh, Royce's health and, and a visa issue have meant that for the time being they're, they're going to have to go and be in the States. Um, we very much look forward to them coming back at some point uh, as, as the Lord has it for them. But um, just for this moment, I wondered if you'd maybe give them a round of applause to thank them for their time and their service here with us. Thank you guys for what you've brought us from the Lord. Isaiah 42, you have it open there in front of you. We've had four looks at Isaiah so far. The first night we got together, we just thought we'd get to know Isaiah, uh, the prophet himself, and then we started to look at his message. We discovered that it was a message of judgment and hope for Israel that it was a message of judgment and hope for the nations. And right up until chapter 39, this, there is a sense in which judgment can dominate or feels like it dominates the early chapters of, of uh, Isaiah. And the question you get, you get to when you get to the end of 39 and start moving into the second half of the book, the question is, what do you say to people whose world has been shattered? Dan's talked about the kind of week that we have had here. I I absolutely get that. I think it's been a a difficult and dark week. It feels to me like a difficult and dark week in a difficult and dark season. Things have been difficult. So maybe more than we would at some other points in our history, we understand what it is to be a little in despair to be dejected? What do you say to people whose world has been shattered? So that's the question that Isaiah or his disciples, whoever is writing this second part of um, the the book, they have to bring words to to God's people, these exiles in Babylon. Uh, 
Just to remind us, God's people have failed him. He's acted in judgment. So a, a long time after the northern kingdom of Israel is dragged off into exile by the Assyrians, a Babylonian army comes finally to Jerusalem and drags into captivity God's people from that city. It's no exaggeration to say they've reached the lowest point in their national history. What do you say to people whose world has been shattered? We said this last time, cheap comfort's no good, waste of time. Comfort that isn't grounded in reality isn't any good at all. And when we looked at chapter 40, we saw that Isaiah brings hope, but it's real hope, true to their situation. And if you were here, you might remember that we distilled the message of that chapter into four things that God says to his people. He says, you are still my people. You are forgiven. You're coming home and you can trust me. So through the prophets, God was telling his people things are going to change, things are going to get better, but he hadn't really told them much about how that was going to come about. Even if God is promising to change the, the circumstances of his people, this question of how he's going to do it remains before us. How can God forgive sinful, rebellious people? How can he bring them home into a right relationship with him? That's the question that we need to move into this evening. And the answer lies in a, in a figure, a person, whom Isaiah is going to introduce this evening. So who do we look to when our world's falling apart? Uh, I spared you the PowerPoint. I was nearly going to flash up some photographs of some of your favorite people, Boris and Donald and Arlene. Who are we looking to? Who's going to help us out of these times that we find ourselves in if we're looking for something to get better? God's people were at the lowest point of their national history. God says, I'm going to change things. And he says, I'm going to do it through a person. Now, it's interesting right away, he's not a prime minister or a president or a first minister. He's not even a, a social media influencer. Uh, they've become a big part of how our world works nowadays. He's a servant. We're looking now at the text. You see it in verse 1? Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom we delight. Before I fly into that, I want to just say that this is going to be an important theme. I want to, to recognize that before we even enter into it. This, this theme of a servant is going to be important for us as we move on through Isaiah. So servant language has been used a few times in the book so far. So Isaiah called himself God's servant in chapter 20, verse 3. There's a guy called Eliakim, the chief steward of Hezekiah in chapter 22, who's known as the servant of the Lord. Flick back for a second to chapter 41. You'll see there, verse 8, that God refers to his people even during, they're, they're in exile. He's speaking to them through his prophet. 
They're in exile from their land, from their holy city, from their temple, and so on. But he still refers to them as his servant. And that's because they they remain the descendants of Israel. They remain God's chosen people. He's punished them as a father punishes the son whom he loves. But he hasn't rejected them. They are his servant. So if if you did the word search, you'd find that in the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah, God, or the, the book refers to uh, servants three or four times. You'd discover that in the last shorter section of the book, the reference to sermon, servants go through the roof. But it happens, it starts here. Verse one of chapter 42, there's something different going on here. The language here, here is my servant. It's, it's the language you use if you want to launch somebody into the public eye. So Samuel, whenever he was introducing Saul as the first king of Israel, did this, here is your king. Whenever Pilate was talking about Jesus and pushed him out in front of the crowds, here is your king. It, it's like a, a trumpet blast. Here is my servant. Actually, these, these verses, the opening nine verses of chapter 42, they're the first of four, a sequence of four, uh, what are called servant songs throughout Isaiah. We're going to notice that more as we go forward. But these songs, as we read them, they build a picture of this servant of the Lord. Mysterious now, but we'll learn more as we go. Who is this first servant? Who is this servant? What's this first song about? Given what we've just noticed in chapter 41, where the servant is the nation of Israel, you'd almost imagine opening verse of chapter 42, it's still talking about Israel. And, and, you know, that's possible. Look, here's my servant, this apparently defeated bunch of people. I'll achieve my purposes through them. As I say, that's a possibility. But on further reflection, it seems unlikely. The servant in chapter 42 is far too beautiful to be the Israel that's sitting in Babylon. Look at him. He's my chosen one in whom I delight. Look at those opening verses. He's quiet. He's gentle. He's faithful and persevering. He doesn't falter. He doesn't get discouraged. It'd be lovely if we could take all of that and say, yes, that sounds like Israel. Of course it's them. But I don't think we can. We'll see in a moment uh, when we look to the end of the chapter that that, that it simply doesn't fit. The servant in this passage, passage is not Israel as she actually is. But the servant in this passage is a person who embodies everything that Israel was supposed to be. That's the Israel part of this. The servant in this passage is God's perfect servant. If we've got this right, then we don't read these verses as talking about the nation, God's people themselves. It's more of a message to the nation about a real person, someone who's God's answer to their weakness and their failure. Who is he? 
We, we don't know just yet. But let's follow the, the lead of God's word. What does Isaiah tell us about this servant in this first of these servant songs? He tells us three things, and the NIV helped by splitting it into three paragraphs. The servant brings three things with him. He brings justice, light, and new things. The opening four verses talk about the justice that he brings. Verse one, he'll bring justice to the nations. Verse three, he'll bring forth justice. Verse four, he won't falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. That Hebrew word, mishpat, that underlies our translation there, justice, it certainly means justice, but it means more than than what you and I might associate by our definition of justice. In chapter 40, for example, in verse 14, the word's translated as the right way So this is a person who knows the right way of things. In chapter 40, verse 27, Israel complains and says, my cause is disregarded by my God. The word translated as cause is the word mishpat. It's the mishpat that's been disregarded. It's Israel's correct place in the world. People in a special relationship with God. That's what it means there. Chapter 41, verse 1 when it talks about the place of judgment, it's talking about the place of mispat, a place where the false claims of the nations and their gods are silenced and where the truth about the Lord's total sovereignty and history will be established. If we take those together, what, what is this justice that he brings? This servant, when he comes will make everything that's wrong right. This servant then, we've said, he brings justice to the world and puts it to rights. The second thing he does is that he brings light. Look at verses five to seven. The Lord this time is talking directly to the servant. Sometimes the prophets move in voice. Sometimes they're talking to the nation. Sometimes they're talking to the servant. Just... Keep keep an eye on that. The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. So that Lord who created heavens and earth, he's in a loving relationship with all that he's made. And so, he says, verse 6, to his servant, I'll keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. There's a couple of things happening tonight that we need to say, right, there's more of that to come. So there's more of the servant to come as we move further into Isaiah, but light. Expect to hear more from Isaiah about light. He's talked about light before in the book. So at the end of chapter 8, he's describing a very bleak time for God's people. He says, they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into outer darkness. But then in chapter 9, in a passage that will be read in carol services the world over, and you know them well, Isaiah talks about a bright, bright future. The people walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Folks, it occurred to me a while ago, um, as I was thinking about the light metaphors in the Bible, that I don't think we get them. I don't think we understand them because we don't know what light meant to the biblical writers. So, um, how do I explain what I mean by this? So, certainly where we live here in Valley Hackamore, um, it's hard to get any darkness, you know? The street lighting is strong. We, uh, I suppose you could call it light pollution. So when I, when I put on the lights in the car, sometimes I don't even remember to put on the lights in the car. That's weird, isn't it? You can drive about at nighttime and you don't need lights on because there's so much light. Um, or if I put on lights in my bike, they're not really showing me where to go because I can see where to go by all the street lighting. The best they're doing is maybe showing other people that I'm there so that they don't drive into me. So I think in a world where we have probably more than enough light, I don't think these metaphors really bite. So, so forget about all that for a second and imagine yourself in, in rural Palestine. In Isaiah's time, or the time of Jesus, he talked about the light of the world and said his disciples were the light of the world. So imagine your friend from Bethlehem, three miles outside of Jerusalem, says, come over for dinner. Okay. And you leave the house and it gets dark while you're on the road. Like what can you see on that journey? You can see Nothing. If you're fortunate, it's a, a clear night and the moon gives a, a wee bit of light. So in that kind of context, in that kind of environment, take the metaphor back up again. What if your friend says, come and see me nine o'clock this evening and I'll leave the light on for you. All of a sudden, your journey is, is trying to find this light. Once you see it, there's a, a joy and a peace because you now know that you, you're, you've found the way you're going to be guided home. That's what the biblical writers, I think, are talking about. Not light pollution. Not one light among thousands. They're talking about lights that light up dark places, that bring hope to people in darkness, that guide lost people home. The servant's going to bring justice. He's going to bring light. Thirdly, in this first song, he's going to bring new things. Look at verse 9. The, the servant's work's described there in terms of the former things and the new things. When Isaiah talks about the former things, he's going to do that quite a lot. Usually what he means there is God, through the prophets, told you how certain things were going to be, and they have come to pass. Those were the former things. God's proved himself faithful. If you look over your shoulder, you'll see that things have been as he had said they would be. But what are the new things? that God's planning to do through his servant. We're not sure. 
Don't really know yet. But what we do know as we read in chapter 42 is that we're entering a new chapter. We should expect things to change for God's people. God's going to show his glory in the world in a new way. Things are going to start that haven't been seen among God's people before, far surpassing anything that he's done in the past. New things. As we read further in Isaiah, we're going to see those new things aren't done until there's a new heavens and a new earth. Okay. We have looked at that servant song. We still don't know who this servant is. Well, is is mystery is his identity is is a mystery certainly to Isaiah's first hearers. They hear this stuff and they haven't a notion who God is talking about through his prophet. They don't have that particular sense that we can have when they read these passages. I was chatting to a friend of mine this week who's better, much better at Hebrew than I am, and I was given off about this sermon. I said, I'm going to try and preach this sermon. I'm going to talk about the servant of the Lord, but I don't want people to understand this, this idea that the servant of the Lord I don't want them to miss that the servant of the Lord is the Lord. Like you're all sitting there going, hey, Christoph, we know you're talking about Jesus. All right? I know you know that. But I want us to, to get it from the text. How would you know that from the text? So I said to my friend, I don't want people leaving on Sunday night thinking that the servant of the Lord is somebody other than the Lord, and the language makes it feel like it is. He told me that my instinct was correct, but my understanding of Hebrew was rubbish. And I knew that. So he said it like this. He said in the Hebrew, whenever it talks about the mountain of holiness, that's just the way you say the holy mountain. So he says, whenever you see the phrase, the servant of the Lord, one of its meanings can be, it simply means the serving Lord, the Lord who is a servant. Folks, I know that you know when I'm talking here that I'm talking about Jesus. But what we see here is glorious. We're talking about Jesus and we're talking about our God. Of course we are because Jesus is our God. But there is no other God other than Jesus and this serving God. This is going to take a bit of getting our heads around. I'm going to take a couple of moments to just notice a couple of other things in the chapter, but then I want to spend our last few minutes thinking about what it means that our God is a serving God. Sometimes a, a great preacher will shock his audience. He'll try to shake them up a bit to regain their attention. And I think that's what Isaiah does at the end of our chapter, if you look at the closing verses, he's been telling us about this servant who's to come, about what a beautiful person he is, and then he tells us at the end of the chapter about a failed servant, a terrible servant, one who hasn't brought any justice or light or the renewal that the servant of the Lord will bring. Verse 19, he's blind and he's deaf, blind to God's purposes, deaf to God's word. 
he immediately moves into the plural and you know that he's not talking about the same servant of the Lord. It's not this person that's in the early part of the chapter. There are people who have been plundered and looted. He's talking about the nation, about Jerusalem and Judah. Because this is what's happened to them, remember? The Babylonian invasion, they were plundered and looted. And worse, verse 24, he, he says that God's allowed them to be plundered and looted. It's a way of punishing them for their disobedience. We're told, verse 25, he poured out on them his burning anger. Folks, even in this second part of Isaiah, the part from chapter 40 through to the end, I think it would be disingenuous not to notice that the prophet still talks words of judgment. The reason he does it is because he loves the people and because he's a good pastor. He knows that everything that he's offering in the early part of this chapter, everything that the servant comes to bring, it, it won't ever land with the people until they've faced up to their sinfulness and repented of it. God can't and won't bring a new hope and refreshment and renewal to us while we live stubbornly in sin and outside of repentance. Isaiah, by the way, isn't self-righteous. He's not shouting at the people. Look at verse 24. He includes himself with the sins of the people. I wonder if he never quite forgot his experience that we thought about that first week, that experience recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. He's in the temple, the, the vision of the, the absolute holiness of God. He's shaken to the core and he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knows what it is to be forgiven and he wants others to know it too. One last look at the chapter. The final part that we haven't looked at yet is in the middle there, chapter, uh, verses 10 to 17. We've just seen the failed servant of the Lord at the end of the chapter. And the stark contrast with the true servant of the Lord uh, makes the, the true servant even more beautiful. God's sending a servant to renew the world with justice and light. It's enough to make you want to burst into song. And so that's what Isaiah does. And he invites us to sing a song of praise to God. He calls the whole world to join him in praising God. Sailors and desert dwellers, sea creatures and human beings, islands and mountains. Why not? God made them all. And the praise reaches its climax with two bold and dramatic images. Have, have a look there. The Lord describes himself as the savior of his people. He says, like a warrior, he'll stir up his zeal. With a shout, he'll raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. And then the second image, verse 14, like a woman in childbirth, he gasps and he pants. We were talking here this morning about a redeemer God. 
a champion who does everything that's needed to rescue us from everything that enslaves us. Folks, these verses show us that our redemption come at great effort and require great cost. And it says a lot about our God that he doesn't, doesn't shirk the effort or the cost. No matter how much the people have failed him, no matter how much they've let him down, he says, verse 16, I'll not forsake them. What a great thing to be thinking about and to be singing about. It's the song of God's people that we'll sing together in eternity in heaven. Folks, I said we'd spend the last few moments thinking about what it means for us that our God is a serving God. It's not a hard idea to understand, is it? We know what a servant is, but it's a much more difficult role to embrace. Jesus, when he finally came, he told us, I haven't come to be served, but to serve. So people in communities like this know that we're supposed to serve. It's just that we don't want to. You see, a servant has little or no status. A servant is someone who does stuff for other people. And it's usually the stuff that they don't want to do for themselves. No one wants to be a servant. It's a pretty unsettling thing, and maybe we need to allow it to unsettle us this evening. To start thinking the way Isaiah is inviting us to think. Could it be that our God, whose, whose majesty and whose power we'll never, we'll never quite get a handle on, we, we will just never be able even to imagine them. Our God, who's glorious beyond belief, is it possible that he's chosen to act mostly as a servant? Here is my servant. Servanthood is the way to be among God's people. I love how Eugene Peterson comments on this first servant song. He says, servants go about their work quietly and deferentially. They walk down the street and speak in soft conversational tones. There's no hard sell and no loud argument with anyone who chooses to deny or ignore them. They won't destroy a bruised reed, a person who counts for little in the eyes of society. They won't coerce a person who might seem like a pushover, a dimly burning wick. There is no person, no matter how weak or useless, to whom they do not stand as servants. They at no time stand over another and bully they stand under or alongside. 
Folks, you'll understand, I'm sure, if I want to close by talking about Jesus. Jesus showed us fully and finally what it looks like to be a servant. It's funny, Jesus' birth would almost get you off to a false start because there were angel choirs. There was some dramatic stuff going on to announce that this kid was something special. But, but look beyond that for a second. Born to peasant parents in a nothing kind of town in the roughest part of a family home. Jesus made a career of rejecting status. Do you know that about him? Even when they tried to make him a, a, a leader, a, a person of standing, he, he gently sidestepped their efforts. Instead, he touched lepers. He washed the feet of his disciples. That's a weird one, isn't it? Because we don't wash feet, we don't know what that means. Do you know what it means? I think it means when you've been on a, say, a residential weekend with a group of people and you're tidying the place up and some, somebody's given out the jobs and says, who's going to clean the loos? I'll do it. That's Jesus. The job nobody wants to do. His disciples didn't want to wash each other's feet. They waited to see if anybody would do it, and nobody would. I'll do it. He washed the feet of his disciples. He befriended little children. He encouraged women into his entourage. That's a big deal. And he let the Romans nail him up, didn't he? Everything about Jesus spoke of servitude. As I've read this first of these servant songs, it's starting to dawn on me that if I want to look anything like Jesus Christ, I'll need to be a servant too. Let's pray.